We've been studying the mission of God, and over the next few minutes, what I'm actually wanting us to consider is, what if the mission of God is love? What if the core tenet of the mission of God is love, and everything else that we sometimes think is the mission of God is simply some, some action that's involved in it, but actually the mission is love. If we think about the picture that's on the screen, God created everything, and God is the only immortal being. He's always been, He always will be, and He is. His name actually means the one who causes things to be. So, if that's the case, and we've been thinking about the mission of God, and Les has started us all the way back at creation, which is awesome, and we're going to touch on some of that this morning, what was the point in making everything? Why did he make the cosmos? Why did he make us? Well, he wanted a family. He, he wanted to have creation that interacted with him, that loved him back, because he's love. And if we think about it, the Bible tells us this, there was heavenly beings that he created, and then he created humans. And at the beginning, everything was together. He walked in the garden, the other beings were in the garden. Um, there was a mixture of how everything was actually supposed to be. Heaven and earth were joined, if you will. And then something went wrong. But before we get to the something went wrong, we have to look at one more thing. God does not exercise his love solely towards his creation, uh, for, the, for that would imply that God was not fully actualized until he actually created something. Rather, the trinity itself of the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that actually is love. So he didn't have to create to be love. He already was love, he already had a loving relationship with the other members of the trinity. But he created and still desired love with his creation. Well, what happens with love is there must be an alternative for love to be real. If you think about it, if there was no other option but to just do what you say love is, then that would be robotic or that would be some sort of almost slavery, right, where you had to do exactly what you were created to do and there was no choice. But we're free will beings and so were the beings created before us in the unseen realm. And well, they and we or some of them, and some of us, chose the alternative. But God remains resolute. That's the difference. He could have just said, okay, this didn't work. I'll just give up, and I'll do something else. But instead, he remains resolute. And Les did an excellent job of walking us through Genesis 3, and he even introduced the idea of cosmic sin, if you'll remember. Sin had permeated, actually, the heavens as well, not just the garden. We see that in the curses that are in Genesis 3. The curses of the serpent and all of, all of those who are attached to him. The curses of the ground and the creation and the curses of humanity. And then we went to the covenants. There's one covenant, not up here yet, we'll get to in a minute. But there's five covenants. There's the covenant with Noah, there's the covenant with Abraham, there's the covenant with Israel, and there's the covenant with David. And we're going to look at the one with Israel for a second. This is from Exodus 24, 8. Moses took the blood and splashed it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And all those words are the Ten Commandments and also the book of the covenant of all the things that they would do, that they said they would, they would adhere to because they love God. What's interesting is a few verses before that, the blood's also sprinkled on the altar that represents God. So you see there on the slide, 
Why? Well, because blood is life. It's a life contract. It's a commitment that is going to be life for life if it's breached. And so God's love for us risks God's life somehow. Later, in verses 9 through 11, Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. And I would say, with him, with God. Interesting. Maybe we haven't noticed that before because we don't spend very much time in the Old Testament, but there's a meal after this covenant announcement, after this agreement that they will keep the covenant. And then back to our theme kind of this morning, and this will tie together here in a minute, from Psalms 136, 1 through 4. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. In other words, the being that is superior to absolutely everything. For his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. There again, to the master of masters. The absolute top authority. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. His love endures forever. And then later in the chapter, verse 23, picking up there. He remembered us in our low estate. He remembered us. He loves us. He loves us so much, we're going to look at here in a minute, we're going to try to put that into some sort of feelings that he, that he wanted to reach down and find a way to bring us back into the family. His love endures forever. Look at how I highlighted his love because the next clause says, and freed us from our enemies. Well, what and? His love freed us from our enemies. So love is central to everything that's going on. As John said, it's the centrality of the journey. It's the centrality of of the mission of God. He gives food to every creature. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. All right, so here's what, here's what comes a challenge to us, first part of the challenge this morning. Saying I love you is actually the easy part. A lot of us do it. Unfortunately, we don't have time this morning to look at all the wrongful uses of the word love. I love pizza, I love my car, I love my dog, I love, I love my wife, I love notebook paper, I love computers. Whatever we put love in front of, we don't really mean it for all that stuff. So therefore, we start saying something that really doesn't cause us that much challenge until we actually have the difficulty of actually having to put it into action. But we're going to see that God puts it into action. So, I don't normally do this, but I wanted to use just a little bit of humor. So... Uh, Princess Bride, a movie we're almost all familiar with. There's a word in that movie that the characters, uh, one of the characters, Vicini, keeps using over and over and over again. And another character finally says, you know what? I, I, don't, I don't think that word means what you think it does. You just keep saying it. And I would say that we could apply that to how we use the word love. But the word in the movie is inconceivable. Okay? Inconceivable. Unfathomable. Unimaginable. Unable to be understood. So it dawned on me, those words go together. That's inconceivable love. That's what it looks like. It looks like Jesus, because that's what Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. And he's also God, that the Old Testament, we've just very briefly looked at some of the descriptions of God and his love. And that brings us to the New Covenant. The new covenant that we just participated in around the table. 
A covenant that if you look here on the screen is in his blood. So there's how, there's how God risked his life. Jesus, who is actually God, comes and dies as God, as human, to repair the breach, to bring us back into the family. The non-compete agreement there on the right, it's kind of fascinating to think about a non-compete agreement. Uh, we signed one at Sinai, the people, humanity did, we breached it. But God signed one too, and he didn't breach it. As a matter of fact, he ends up signing one for us as Jesus. He signs a non-compete from humanity's side as a human, as God, which there comes the inconceivable part, right? I, I mean, quickly you start getting a brain cramp if you try to think through that. But that, that feast, here's a scene from The Chosen that my little icon got cut off a little bit, sorry. Um, it's referred to as the love feast. It's the same idea that we just read about in Exodus Jesus puts the new covenant together with his disciples, with his apostles, and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, and then they have a meal together, a meal with God. They eat and drink, just like they did on Mount Sinai. A text we know well, John 3:16 and 17 from the uh, Lexham English Bible says, for in this way God loved the world, so that he gave his one and only Son, in order that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world in order that he should judge or condemn the world, but in order that the world should be saved through him. See, Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He came to rescue it. But the only way to rescue it is through love. So the mission to rescue the world, to rescue his family members, is actually love. The Bible Project does a good job of this. What we've talked about so far uh, to this point and kind of recapped with what we've been doing in the mission of God, these two spheres represent heaven and earth, and when the fall happened at the end of Genesis 3, they were separated. So God you know, was only with us on earth when he was inside his, his tent and his tabernacle in a specific holy of holy places because everything else around him was tainted and he couldn't be in it anymore. But when Jesus comes and is obedient even to death, the purple area between the two is a small spot of overlap that started with Jesus and then expanded to the twelve and then out to the disciples. So keep that in mind as we progress through here in the next couple of minutes. First John 4, 7-9 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Well, that's pretty, pretty clear. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, here comes the inconceivable love part, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. We might have eternal life. So back to what William read. 1 Corinthians 13, the Sermon on the Mount, the things we read and say, ah, well, those are, those are lofty ambitions and goals, but nobody can really do them. Well, he did. He did them. Sermon on the Mount is possible. 1 Corinthians 13 is possible. Jesus is inconceivable love. From the Gospel of Luke, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Listen to this language. Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. 
Isn't it interesting that the center word is a population of people, but the you is a different population of people? But love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Another text we're familiar with from Mark. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. When Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? This is his answer. And then he says in the second, is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. John goes on to say, no one has greater love. Actually, Jesus says this in John's gospel. No one has greater love than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And then 1 John 3.16, often really easy to remember since we remember uh, John 3.16 so well. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Well, whew, thank goodness. Man, I was getting nervous. I thought we were going to have to lay down our lives for everybody. But it says we only have to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, right? So that means that we lend to other Christians, we, we help other Christians, we love on other Christians like Jesus, and if we, had to, if, we, if we had to put ourselves in a position that we would give up our life, we would do it for another Christian. Hmm. Well, if we look at it that way, then there's a bunch of other problems because Jesus tells us to love our enemies. And if we love our enemies, probably they're not Christian. Probably. Right? And so if we go down that trail for a second, we might say something like this. We might say, well, thank goodness it says this because I thought I was going to have to maybe pray for, for Putin. I thought I was going to have to pray for Russians and for Ukrainians. And I thought I was going to have to pray for the person that doesn't understand the doctrines the way I do. And I thought I was going to have to pray for the person who sees eternal punishment differently than I do. And I thought I was going to have to pray for the person who's a Republican, or I thought I was going to have to pray for the person who's a Democrat, or I thought I was going to have to pray for the person who's worshiping the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit right this minute in a building that the sign out front doesn't say Church of Christ on it. Whew. Well, I'm glad I don't have to do that. Well, I'm glad, thanks be to God, that Jesus didn't interpret it that way. Because while we were yet enemies, he died for us. So what he's telling us is, I loved you inconceivably, and I'm asking you to love other people inconceivably. All the time. You let me worry about the rest of it. You let me worry about the judgment. You let me worry about who's going where and all that, and what, if they had their doctrine right and whatever else. You just love people the way I've loved you. And here's how we can know that for sure. You can say, well, I don't know where it says that. Well, um, I hope that the other scriptures that have been referenced about loving your enemies and such would be enough. But look at 2 Corinthians 9, 10 through 15. Now God, who provides seed for the sower and bread for food, will provide and multiply your supply of seed and will cause the harvest of your righteousness to grow. So if we're doing this loving, he's going to fertilize it for us, and it's going to produce results. You will be in, enriched in every way so that you may be generous on every occasion, which is producing through us thanksgiving to God. Because the service of this ministry is not only providing for the needs of the saints, uh -oh, but is also overflowing with many thanks to God. Though, through this evidence of this service, 
They will glorify God because of your obedience to your confession in the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your sharing with them and with everyone. And in their prayers on your behalf, they long for you because of the extraordinary grace of God, because of the extraordinary grace God has shown you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. See, if he hadn't loved us the way we don't really want to love other people, we wouldn't be in here right now. So it becomes an action. It becomes a lifestyle. God is love. Jesus is actually God. He represents the Father who is love, not a God of condemnation. And notice, when I said a while ago, notice that phrasing of the two groups Jesus never calls or refers to any of his children as sinners. Did you pick up on that? He knows we are trying. He knows we believe. He knows we have faith. So therefore, we're not, we're not denouncing God. Now, I have, a, I have a great thing that happens to me every once in a while. Cheryl sometimes thinks that, that, that it's baggage, but I, but I like it. I go, into, I go into movies and into shows and things, and I say, whoa, that's the master story bubbling up. I don't know if the director's Christian, I don't know if the writer's Christian, I don't know if the actors are Christian, but what they're talking about is found in the Bible, whether they realize it or not. And we watched this movie the other night called The Adam Project, which is a movie that Netflix recorded, and because of copyright and whatnot, I can't show you the clip, so I'm going to tell you about it. Um, and I've actually changed it a little bit. What I'd like for you to do, what I'd like for you to do is hear this clip, hear this dialogue as God talking to you. Because when I sat there and I heard it on the sofa, that's what happened to me. And I'm going to try to get through it. But in this scene, towards the end of the movie, two of this man's sons have done time travel. That's why we don't have time to set this up. Time travel always messes everything up. Don't even go there. Just They're talking to him and they're trying to convince him that in the future they can prevent something from happening in the future. Okay? So you probably, that's enough. You probably understand what's going on. And they say, um, Dad, Abba, Av... Father, it's about the future. You are my future. How lucky am I that I got to see it? Sorry. I saw you being born. I watched you take your first breath. And after that, nothing was ever the same. You are my child, and I love you. I loved you from the first minute that I saw you. And that will never change. You are my child. You are amazing. I love you. Yeah, yeah, I, I get it, Dad. No, I don't think you do. I'm proud of you. I love you. Know that inside your heart. You are mine, and you will always be mine throughout all time. Don't carry anything else around with you. You are going to be okay. You are going to be better than okay. Now we know we have to put one little thing with that, you're okay. You're okay because you love me. For those who love God, all things work together for good. But wouldn't it be great if we could have confirmation of this? Well, well we do. Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's, he has said that to us. 
But we get so fixated on the rules and on the condemnation, we don't hear how much he loves us, that he came and that he actually died. So, so these kids get it in the movie, and they say, well, what, what can we do? There must be something we can do. Also in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So, I want to repackage the mission of God. Still love, but, look, but read along with me on the screen. The mission of God is to restore the creation and the life of humanity from the ravages of sin. Undoing the curse. Writing Genesis 3 backwards. The church's function in this story is to participate in God's mission. We are to be caught up in God's own work of restoration and healing. This defines the identity and role of the church. The church's identity is defined by the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom revealed in Christ Jesus. The church is the community that experiences amid life the power of God's renewing work and thus embodies the comprehensive and restoration, restorative salvation of the kingdom for the sake of the world. God works out his redemptive purposes by choosing a people to demonstrate to where all history is headed. So we're ambassadors for Christ. I have, a, I have a professor and an author friend that I communicate on a regular basis, and he says, you know what? He says, to do theology well, you actually need a course in logic. Because if you don't have a course in logic, you'll, you often end up finding dichotomies that you make yourself. You're like, well, you know, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. God's expecting me to do this. Oh, I hope I can get in. I hope he loves me enough. I hope I've been good enough. All those different dichotomies go away when you say, wait a minute, maybe you've noticed he's been here all morning. He's sitting literally right here in the room with us. There's nowhere we go that he doesn't go with us. And when we love like Jesus as his representatives, nothing we do can harm or cause separation. We're not that powerful. If God's reconciling people to himself and he's calling them, he's calling them. He's only asked us to show them he exists and that he's real by loving them the way he loves us. So back to the Venn diagram. Uh, Revelation 21 talks about new heavens and new earth. We're a big part of that. We can't bring it. We can't force it to happen. But look at how much bigger the purple section is here. Think about Jesus, the 12, the disciples, the churches, the, where we are now in 2022 we can make that purple area a whole lot bigger by inviting more and more people to the eternal family. And we would be following a long list of people in history that got this. They really totally understood it. Ignatius from 115 AD said, Pray continually for the rest of humanity. Allow them to be instructed by you, at least by your deeds. In response to their anger, be gentle. In response to their boasts, be humble. In response to their slander, offer prayers. In response to their errors, be steadfast in faith. In response to their cruelty, be gentle. Do not be eager to retaliate against them. Let us show ourselves their siblings by our forbearance, and let us be eager to be imitators of the Lord, to see who can be the more wronged, who the more cheated, 
who the more rejected, in order that no weed of the devil might be found among you, but that with complete purity and self-control you may abide in Christ Jesus physically and spiritually. And then, oh, 500 years later, Maximus the Confessor, who died in 662, said this, quoting the Lord, he says, But I say to you, the Lord says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who persecute you. Why did he command these things? So that he might free you from hatred, sadness, anger, and grudges, and might grant you the greatest possession of all, perfect love, which is impossible to possess except by the one who loves all equally in imitation of God. So again, Jesus is here. He's always with us. I find myself oftentimes when I'll pray and somebody will say, hey, can you remember so-and-so in the prayer? They're not feeling well or we don't really know what's going on. And I'll say something like, you know, Lord or God or Father or Jesus, be with so-and-so. And And then I want to say, why am I saying that? He's always with them. The Old Testament, Psalm 139 tells us there's nowhere we can go that God's not there. Matthew 28, Jesus literally says, I am with you always. Wouldn't it be great if there was a way for the world to know that God is real? Wouldn't it be great if more people desired to be rescued by God? And wouldn't it be a whole lot easier if Him with us, giving us the courage to go in and just love like Him, is all He's really asking us to do? Yeah, it'll be challenging. It'll it'll sometimes make us upset. It'll sometimes show us we're not doing as well as we think we are. But here's the deal. We're not a religious country club. We don't come here to get our needs met. We don't come here to make this the place that makes us feel good. We come here to love on each other in the presence of God, all of us corporately together, because He's with us singularly all the time. Wherever two or more are gathered, He's there in the midst. Well, He's definitely here. There's a lot more than two. And we prod each other to good works, to go back out to make that purple area of the overlapping spheres as big as possible. Jesus finished the work of the mission of God from God's side in His inconceivable love, His sacrifice, His laying down His life for us. What do you say we join God in His mission for His creation? So here's the, here's the invitation. I know probably most people in here are eternal family members of God. You're in Christ. You've been baptized. And I thank Him for that. And I thank you for that. And then there are those that are either in here or listening to me on the internet that may not be. Well, would it be a little easier to join an eternal family of loving people who love inconceivably than possibly what you've seen, which is judgmental people and argumentative people and people who know all the right answers and people who tell other people whatever they're doing in their pursuit, in their journey with God is right or wrong per them. Let's lay all that aside. Let's do what he asks us to do. And if you would, and you feel comfortable, let's stand and recommit to that. Say these words with me, if you will. God, we love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Empower us to love our neighbors and enemies as you have loved us through Jesus. Jesus, thank you for rescuing us at the cost of your life. Use our lives to help you in your rescue mission for the world. Blake.